This morning we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And I would ask you to read along with me from the board as we read this portion of the scripture together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I think I speak for us all that reading this text this morning, I feel the weight, the solemnity, the seriousness of these words. Lord, that you have not come to relax any standards, that you have not come to take away the need for holiness, but more than anything, you have come to help us to understand how high our need for holiness actually is and how unreachable the commandments are that in our flesh there is absolutely no way that we can come into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, you have not come so that we can live in a way that glories and enjoys the things for which you died but you have come so that we can be saved from those things and that we will find power in our lives to please you, power for holiness, power for life, and at the end of the road, eternal life and separation from the sin nature that still plagues us so deeply. Father, I long to be perfect. I long to obey your word, but... I find within me another longing that longs for the old things of the world that I used to love. And Lord, I know whichever dog I feed is the one that wins. And I know that each and every one of us in this room is familiar with this struggle. That we are frustrated at times with the sin that we still commit and, and yet we also are so thankful for the forgiveness that we find in you. And so, Father, we come here this morning not to have our ears tickled. We come not to hear the wisdom of man, but to once again be reminded of the holiness that is required, the holiness that is needed, and yet also the holiness that you have provided in your son, Jesus Christ. You have clothed us with your own righteousness and made us fit for heaven. And I am so thankful. So thankful. So Lord, help me to live worthy of the calling for what you've given me and us all as we examine this text this morning. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And you can go ahead and turn in your copy of the word of the Lord this morning to Matthew chapter five once again. And while you're turning there, 
I, I remember a conversation I had with a guy one time. We were talking about uh, the scriptures and, and talking about, um, it was actually a person of another denomination who disagrees on certain aspects of salvation with me, uh, primarily the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of eternal security, as some of us like to refer to it as. And, uh, and anyway, and we were uh, talking about all of the different ways in which uh, the Lord has commanded us. And I went to the Ten Commandments and began to kind of go from commandment to commandment to show that, that we are a people who has broken all of the commandments when we raise them up. And, and one of the things we're going to see in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is, is when you raise them up to God's original standard and purpose, we are guilty of all of them that there's not a single commandment that we have not broken in the Ten Commandments. But, but as I began to do this, this, this person told me, they said, well, you know, that's the Old Testament and that's not useful anymore. Not useful anymore. Can you imagine our Bibles without the Old Testament? Can you imagine, I mean, I mean what of our view of God, the, his transcendent holiness, his power, his omnipotence, which is also power, his omniscience, his, his incredible being, just the, the miraculous and mighty things. I mean, the Red Sea, would you not have loved to have been there? I mean, wasn't that awesome? What, what would happen to our view of the Bible if it were not for the Old Testament? And believe it or not, there's a popular, very popular Christian teacher today, Christian pastor, who is telling us that we need to divorce, we need to unhitch our faith. He started out by saying we need to unhitch it from the Old Testament, and now he's essentially saying we need to unhitch our faith from the Scriptures, period. I don't know what kind of pastor he is, but he's not a Christian pastor. He's not a reformed pastor for sure. He's not a biblical pastor. Because Jesus says very clearly here, do not think that I have come to set aside the law and the prophets. And, and by those two things, law and prophets, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. That, that was kind of shorthand for saying, don't think that by coming to faith, you can just put your Bible aside and not worry about it anymore because now you've got the highest thing. Now you've got everything you need apart from Scripture. You know, uh, one of my friends who's a professor of theology, he was telling me how frustrating it kind of is now because back in the day, he's, he's, about, he's probably in his late 60s by now. And back in the day, whenever they would hire professors, they would ask the question, if you were to, um, it, it, do you put more weight into the principles of scripture or when you come to a decision of what to teach or whatever, do you focus on the inner witness of, of that's going on inside of you. And back in the day, they used to say, oh no, we used to depend on the scriptures. And yet today, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on the scriptures anymore. And so it just kind of shows this kind of slide that's taken place. And I'm not saying that the inner witness of the spirit is not there. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the inner witness of the spirit is never gonna disagree with the word of God. And so my purpose this morning for each and every one of us is that this, starting this week, if we haven't yet, 
that we will be have a greater commitment to remain faithful to the word of God, that we will make it our authority, that we will have a, a, a steadfast faithfulness and a steadfast loyalty to obedience to the word of God. And so as you're looking at this, and again, let me just remind you where we are. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are talking about the Sermon on the Mount is essentially a kind of pocket guide to Christian living. It is the first sermon that Jesus has given. And it's kind of the disciples' life and miniature, everything we see that is required of the disciple. We see here, we saw the eight core characteristics. We saw the two primary responsibilities. And now we're gonna ask ourselves, what is the authority in the life of a disciple? What is that ultimate authority that we have? And the question we find is right here in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus does not imagine his mission as a mission of setting aside the scriptures, setting aside the word. And so this morning, you and I, we need to commit to be faithful, to remain faithful to the scriptures in our lives. We must remain faithful to the scriptures in our lives. And how are we gonna do that? There are, there are three ways that we do that that I see in this text this morning that I want you to see. Beginning in verse 18, he's gonna give some details about what all of this means. And the first thing we see in verse 18 is that we remain faithful to the scriptures by submission to the scriptures' enduring authority by submission to the scripture's enduring authority. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, for truly I say to you, and when Jesus says that, you always wanna pause and think, okay, what he is about to tell you is about to be significant. It's like when, it's like when you're having a conversation with someone, and he says, listen, I'm gonna tell you something. You know, the fact that he paused right there and instead of telling you what he was gonna say, he stopped long enough to tell you, hey, I'm about to tell you something. That tells you that what he is about to say is in his mind, at least, very significant. I used to have a lot of fun with my cousin because he would always say, I tell you what, and I'd go, what? I just told you, you know? And so uh, when you do something like that, though, that means, yes, I agree with that. Yes, I, 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 I affirm this. This is important. It's kind of like the uh, non-churchy way of saying amen in a service, right? You know, we should try that sometime. Instead of saying amen, we should say, I tell you what. <laughs> I think we might run off some people if we did that, so... <laughs> But Jesus says that this is the enduring authority of scriptures. Do not think that I've come to abolish them because I'm gonna tell you something here that until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot of the word will be abolished, will be done away with. What does that mean? The word uh, iota there, some of you may have... Uh, like something like the smallest letter or something like that. Uh, the classical translation is jot. That's actually a Germanized version of yod. Yod is the smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 
all right? And that's what it's referring to. It's saying that the smallest letter, which in our, which in our alphabet would be what? I guess I, maybe? Some, I don't know. The, the smallest letter that you can think of in the alphabet, not one of those is going to be done away with in the law. Not one of those or even the smallest stroke, which is what he means when he says not even a dot. You say, what's he talking about? Let me ask you a question. What's the difference between a little L and a little T? What's the difference? It's one little stroke, right? What's the difference between... Um, I don't know, a W and a V, right? Just a little stroke, that's all there is. And Jesus is saying not even the smallest letter or not even the stroke of a pen is going to pass away from the law until everything in it comes to happen. Everything takes place. Now, it would be very tempting to think that this is referring to the doctrine of preservation, and, and some people, they, they do make that argument. And, and of course, they make it to defend certain translations over others and why, you know, this translation is better than others, so and so. But that's, that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about is the authority of the word. That not one stroke of the Bible's authority is going to be set aside until everything that the word of God intends to happen happens. That everything that God has said will happen will take place. It's referring to the enduring authority of the word. There's a teacher today named Bart Ehrman. You may have heard of him. He's an agnostic teacher and he uses this verse to attack the word of God and he doesn't even understand it because Jesus is not talking about preservation here. We believe in the preservation of the word. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what it's teaching here. It's talking about authority. And it's the enduring authority of the word. You say, how do you know that? Well, let's look at some, let's look at some other scriptures to kind of back this up. For example, Psalm 119, 89 says, forever, O Yahweh, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In other words, it is not going anywhere forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse eight says basically the same thing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It will stand forever. The authority of scripture will last until everything that the scriptures tell us, all of its purposes, all of its themes, everything that it says comes to fruition. And by the way, what is that purpose? John, ask me, what is that purpose? I'm glad you asked. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse 10. What's the purpose? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. So until that verse is fulfilled, the scripture stands until that verse is done, the scriptures stand. Everything that is necessary for you to believe and everything that is necessary for you to do is given to you in the word. Beloved, God does not play games with your lives. The will of God is not some divine Easter egg hunt that you hope you find it, but maybe you won't. It's not, he gives you everything you need in the word of God. And guess what? If it's not in the word of God, 
then it's not necessary for your salvation. And it's not necessary for your holiness. If it is in the word of God, then it is. Then it is. You know, all today, our culture is obsessed with personal autonomy. You go into Burger King and the slogan used to be, have it your way. We want to all have it our way. In fact, there's a teacher who just retired in Batesville and she used to have the Burger King rules. Everybody in here knows what I'm talking about if you went to Batesville, don't you? Batesville Junior High, the Burger King rules. This is, this is my way. My class is done my way, right? And we are obsessed with that in our culture. In fact, a survey that was conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau, they asked young adults about the importance of various life transitions, uh, people ages 18 to 34. And all of the factors have to do with achieving personal autonomy. To be adult then, all they said was, is that you have to be free and independent of obligations from others. In other words, I must live my truth is what they said. That's a big thing today. My truth. I must live my truth. Personal autonomy. Jesus says, don't, don't fall for that. Don't think that I've come to set the scriptures aside. The book of Judges. You read that book and it is just a, it's just a spiral downward. I mean, every judge gets worse and worse and worse until you finally get to Samson, who's the worst of all, Right? And then you get to those last four chapters and you're thinking, these people are God's people? They are horrible. But it's all summed up in that last verse in Judges chapter 21, 25. <laughs> Lost it there for a second. The Judges 21, 25. And there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is that not where we are in America today? And sadly, is that not where so many churches are in America today? We do what is right in our own eyes, but not what is right in God's eyes. The ultimate authority is not how we feel about it, the ultimate authority is what does God say about it? And that's the only, beloved, even your pastor, I, the only authority I have is what is in this word. The only authority that creeds and confessions have is to the extent that they agree with this word. Those scriptures are the only authority. Sola scriptura, scriptures alone is the authority, the ultimate authority. And so we must submit to the enduring authority of the scriptures if we're going to remain faithful to the word. That's number one. But look in verse 19. How do we submit to that? What is that expressed in? We must submit to the scriptures enduring authority. And what does that look like in our life? We have obedience to the scriptures enduring relevance. Obedience, we, we, we practice obedience to the scripture's enduring relevance. Look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, in Jesus' day, believe it or not, and, and it's probably easy to believe given some of the other arguments they used to have, there was actually a lot of debate over which one was the least of the commandments. The least of the commandments. So, and, and usually Deuteronomy, let's see, what was it? It was Deuteronomy 22, 6 and 7 usually won the day. All right, because that's the commandment that says, if you find a mother bird and her eggs, you're welcome to take the eggs, but don't take the bird, right? And so the scribes pretty much said, yeah, that's the least one. If you're feeling especially holy today, keep it, but otherwise, don't worry about it. We're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna give you a lot of grief over that one if you break that one, all right? And so there were all kinds of arguments. Which one was the least? Which one is the greatest? You remember, Jesus was asked this question. You know, a, a lawyer came up to him and said, well, which one is the greatest commandments? And, and he told him which one it was. And so all, that reflected this debate that was going on during his time. But I want you to understand that what Jesus is doing here is that he's saying, look, that debate is irrelevant. That if God said it, then it's important. And if God says it, then he means it. And one of my problems today with a lot of these modern prophets is that, listen, beloved, God does not speak less authoritatively at some times than he does at other times. And if God is speaking, then you not only need to be paying attention, you need to be writing it down because you are writing scripture which by the way, one of the most best-selling devotionals on the Christian market right now, that's exactly what the lady is claiming to do. Please do not read Jesus Calling. But anyway, so the point is, is that God does not speak less authoritatively at some times than he does others. And if he is speaking, it is authoritative. And Jesus says, whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments. And by the way, the word relaxes there is, uh, pardon the pun, but it's a little relaxed. The word is actually a little stronger than that. It's, it's annul or causing it to, or disregard or causes it to be basically someone who reads a commandment and says, you know what? That really doesn't apply to me. I'm just gonna ignore that. I mean, I know what the Bible says. It was written 2,000 years ago and we know so much more today than, than, what, we, than what they did back then. And, and we all know Paul, he was just a chauvinist anyway, so why should we listen to him? And we all know all of these other things. And I mean, it's good for faith, but yeah, don't, don't put too much stock into it. Jesus says, whoever does that to even one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, if God says it, then it's authoritative. He doesn't speak less authoritatively at times than he does at other times. And whoever says this about the least of these commandments, look what he says. They will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And let me explain what I think Jesus is doing here. I don't think that he's saying that there's going to be ranks in heaven. I don't think he's saying that there's gonna be levels in heaven. 
But I think what he's doing here when he says that if you disregard even the least of these commandments, but those who do and teach others to follow the least of these commandments, you will be called great. But if you disregard the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, you will be called least. I don't think he's necessarily expressing that there's gonna be levels in heaven, but what I think he's doing is he's telling us it is not our place to decide which words we're going to obey and which ones we are not. That is not our place. That is not submission. That is not obedience. And if you don't believe me, try it with your boss sometimes. It doesn't go over very well, does it? And so some of you who are bosses, can you imagine if your employers walk up and you say, yeah, I know you said that, but uh, I just don't feel like doing that. Well, then you don't feel like working then and apparently you don't feel like a paycheck, do you? Right? John wanted to read from the Passion Translation this morning. Wasn't happening. I'm just kidding. He didn't really want to read it. He knows better. So, <laughs> he was teasing me. I know that. But guys, in other words, it's not up to us to determine which commandments has the greatest significance and which ones don't. If God says it, it has significance. And speaking of the Passion Translation, it's not our job to, to treat the words of Scripture willy-nilly and twist them around to make it say what we want, to, want it to say. We must interpret it correctly. We must interpret it properly. We must use reliable translations right? So we're not necessarily talking about rank. We're talking about the significance here. And beloved, our love for God has always been in the scriptures measured, not by how we feel, not by the things we necessarily do, but our love for God in the scriptures has always been directly proportionate to what we do with his word what we do with his word in our lives. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 4. This is, this is the great Shema, the central command of the Jewish faith. It says, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then what does that text go on to do in chapter six? What does it go on to do? It starts talking about these words of mine shall be on your heart and you shall teach them to your children and you shall wear them as frontlets on your clothing. In other words, beloved, and listen, don't get me wrong. Doesn't it feel great to be so in love with God? That feels great, does it not? Uh, a young lady who's graduating today, in fact, from New Hope Refuge, um, she, she works over at Nova Joe's and we're so proud of her and, and she's graduating about to go to, uh, Jonesboro. And, uh, and whenever I pulled up to, uh, uh, get a breakfast, she came to me and she just said, Jesus is so good. And, and isn't he, isn't he great? Amen. One person thinks so. That's wonderful. <laughs> and so isn't he wonderful? I know we're bad. This must speak up. Come on. <laughs> But beloved, your love for God is not measured necessarily how you feel about him, 
But the word of God says that those who love Christ will do what? They will keep his commandments. Your love for God is proportional to how you respond to his word. How you respond to his word. And the feelings follow. The feelings follow. There's nothing wrong with feeling great in God. Nothing wrong with the joy of our salvation. You know, sometimes we walk around looking like we got baptized in pickle juice. You know, cheer up. We have Christ, right? But your love for God is measured by your response to the word. And Christ did not come to abolish the word. He came to fulfill it. And this does bring about a question. What about the Christian and the law? How do we respond to the law? And, uh, and Mark, I was gonna go through this chart, but I'm running out of time. So just put the whole thing up there. Uh, I just want you to kind of see this, that when Christ says, I have not come to abolish the law, that means that the law is still applicable for Christians. However, it is applicable through the lens of Christ. And we need to see that. Remember, he has fulfilled the law. And so where Christ has fulfilled the law already, we, we practice the significance of those things. It'd be just like, uh, for example, uh, whenever I was a kid, my mom used to say, Randy, before you can leave the table at dinner, you must eat three carrots, you must eat four pieces of broccoli, and you must eat three bites of mashed potatoes, Okay. And before I could finish eating, I had to eat three carrots, four pieces of broccoli, and three bites of mashed potatoes. And I'm 42 years old now, and every time I eat, I must eat three carrots, four pieces of broccoli, and three bites of mashed potatoes before I can be done, right? No, I don't do that anymore. But I do try to eat right. You see, here's the thing. Even though I don't follow the specific commandment, that my mom gave me, I am following, what's the significance of that commandment? The significance is that I would learn to eat healthy, right? Like for example, one day my mom told me, don't hit your sister. Okay, so I learned when I was a kid, don't hit my sister. And so let's say today I walk up to brother Stefan and I hit him, right? And Tim, he goes, "Uh uh-uh, and he drags me into jail and he prosecutes me for assault and I plead innocent. Why? Because Stefan's not my sister. I was told not to hit my sister. Stefan's not my sister. I I can punch him all day long, right? We all know that's not right because what's the point of teaching me not to hit my sister? Ideally, don't hit anybody, Right? That's the significance of it. And that is how the law works as well. So for example, Exodus chapter 34, verse 26. Do not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. That means don't eat cheeseburgers, right? Don't eat cheeseburgers. Believe it or not, Bill Gothard said that years ago. Right? Don't eat cheeseburgers. What does that mean? Guys, what's the significance behind that? Because behind that, there was a pagan ritual that came out of the Canaanites where they would do this as a act of worship to their gods. And so, do we eat cheeseburgers today? I plan on eating one this afternoon. I don't know about you guys, right? But what's the significance of that? 
don't worship God by using pagan practices. Do we follow that today? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, one more. How many of you today are wearing a garment made of two kinds of, of cloth? I think probably most of us in the room, right? You realize you're breaking the law? According to God's law, you are. But what's the significance of it? It was a reminder not to mix your faith with other religions. So how do we follow that today? Remember, do not confuse worldly ideas of God with God. So the law is still applicable today. It's applicable in its significance. And we're actually gonna see Jesus work this out in seven different laws throughout the rest of the chapter. But that comes next week. The dietary laws, you see the same thing there. Are they significant today? Yes, they are. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. How many of you guys are having um, um, uh, pork roast today? How many of you guys are having barbecue pulled pork, right? I've always said one of these days, I've got a bacon costume I wore for Halloween years ago. It's just a slice of bacon. And I've always said, I'm gonna wear that the day when I start preaching through Leviticus. I'm not going to, but... But what's the point of that? What's the point of that? Is that whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Those dietary laws are given so that we will be holy as God is holy. In fact, that's how that whole section ends in Leviticus 11. And so you see the significance there. The significance and the principles of scripture are how we become Christ-like. So all the commands and examples in scripture are given as models of the ultimate model, who is Christ. And they're how we become Christ-like. So that's, that's obedience, but let's move on. Just very quickly, I knew I was gonna spend a little more time on that one, so let's move on very quickly. In verse 20, we practice submission to its enduring authority, we practice obedience to its enduring relevance, and we're going to have confidence in scripture's enduring message. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, for I tell you, there he is, second time again. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a profound statement. Profound. You wanna know how you go to heaven? Simple, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You gotta be better than them. Now, most of us today, we hear that and we think that's not hard, right? Because we remember like Matthew uh, 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. We remember Jesus calling them snakes, whitewashed tombs. We remember all of that stuff. But understand when Jesus said this, he's not talking to us. Who's he talking to? He's talking to first century Jews, right? And in the mind of a first century Galilean Jew, they hear Jesus say, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, what do they think? What? I mean, let's face it, guys. When it came to following the letter of the law, no one's ever done it better than the scribes and Pharisees. No one's ever been better at it. And Jesus is saying, I've got to be better than them? 
be like today. He probably wouldn't use the scribes and Pharisees as Jesus were here right now. He would say, if you wanna have a shot at the kingdom of heaven, then you have got to be better than Billy Graham. You've got to be better than Mother Teresa. You've got to be better than, you know, fill in the blank of some great person. I've got to be a better preacher than Adrian Rogers, you know, or, or whatever, whatever it may be. Better preacher than Stefan, I don't know. I would say Art, but he's not here, so. Go for second best. No, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> but... Better than, what? I mean, you can just hear the exasperation in their, the, the, the gasp. You mean in order to have a shot at the kingdom of heaven, I've gotta be better than the most righteous examples that I can think of? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what he's saying. In fact, there was another situation in Luke chapter 18 where this rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, uh, you know, all of these things I've kept from my youth. Look at how great I am. You know, Jesus had just said, no one is good but God alone. And this rich young ruler kind of, you know, puffs out his chest and he says, me too. I'm good also. And Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. All of a sudden, this guy realizes he was actually breaking the first command. He had another God. He loved his wealth. But you remember what Jesus told the disciples after he left? He said, how difficult it is for a rich man to go to heaven. It's, it's more difficult than a camel to pass through the eye of a sewing needle than it is for a rich person to go to heaven. And you remember what the disciples said when they heard that? Who can be saved then? Because after all, in that day, in that time, if you were rich, that meant that you had God's blessings on you. And if a rich man can't go to heaven, then who can? And if I've got to be better than the scribes and Pharisees, who can do that? God can. God can. God's righteousness is better than the scribes and Pharisees. And so do you know what he did? God came in human flesh and he lived a life whose righteousness exceeded the scribes and Pharisees. God did it. And do you remember when the disciples said, who can be saved then? Do you remember his answer? And Luke, he said, what is impossible for you and me is possible with God. You see, it's Jesus's righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus's righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of Billy Graham. Jesus's righteousness that exceeds everything else. And it is his righteousness that we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. We need his righteousness applied to us. You see, understand, Jesus did not come to set the standard of the law lower. The Jews did that. 
We do that. Jesus came to set it back in its proper place so that we would see that there is no salvation by the law. There is no salvation in our fleshly obedience. There is no salvation other than faith alone in Christ alone so that we will understand that salvation must be his righteousness placed on our account by faith alone so that we would understand that the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to understand our sin and the holiness of God so that we call out to him in mercy and we find more than enough in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus brings us back to the law so that we can understand how to be Christ-like by his empowerment and by his grace. Jesus didn't come to lower the law He came to lift it up to where it was intended to be in the first place so that we will understand that we are sinners saved by grace and a wonderfully merciful God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So beloved, we must remain faithful to the scriptures. We must have confidence in that message that it is Christ alone who saves and not our efforts. It's no mixture of grace and works. It's nothing like that, but it is faith alone in Christ alone and the work that he has done on the authority of scripture alone to the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen. And so how do we remain faithful? We saw that we must submit to Scripture's enduring authority. We must be obedient to Scripture's enduring relevance. And finally, we must be confident in that enduring message. So what's some things you can take with you this week? What are some things that you can do? Number one, make time every day to spend in the Word. And make the most of your time. You say, Randy, I'm doing good to get five minutes of my schedule. Okay, make the most of your five minutes. When you come across a text, remember I taught you the Philippians 4, 8 questions. What is true about this? What is noble about this? What is pure about this? What is, use that to meditate on the text and then turn those meditations into prayer. Make it a conversation with God, right? So set time and make, make the most of your time and guard it. Guard it. Beloved, you cannot be obedient to what you've never read. Guard it. Set a, set a timer on your, on your phone. Uh, set an appointment. You know, we keep appointments on our phones nowadays. Keep an appointment with God on your phone and don't let anything else get in the way of it. Set it on your watch. Some of us have, you know, these, these real fancy watches now, you know. Set it on your watch so that it goes off. This is my time with God. I can't do anything else. Some of the guys are... Uh, Getting together for breakfast uh, on Saturdays really early. They wanted to do it at six. I remain my bed, the word. I can't be there that early, brothers. I'm in the word at that time. <laughs> but, but be in the word every day. It doesn't have to be at six in the morning. It, it can be at 12 o'clock at night. Whatever, whatever time is in your routine. Spend time in the word. Make the most of your time. Number two, start working on memorizing scripture. Start working on memorizing Psalm 119, 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Start putting the word of God in your heart. 
I know all of us keep smartphones today and, and we've got you know, untold numbers of translations in our smartphone that we can go to, but beloved, you won't always have that smartphone. What happens if you go blind in your old age? How much scripture will you have stored in your heart to remember and to rely on when you can't read anymore? If you can't hear anymore, how much is stored up in your heart? And if you really wanna you know, work on a verse a week, one verse a week, at the end of the year, you'll have 52 verses memorized. That's better than last year, right? Or, hey, stretch yourself a little bit. Start, memorize, start working on memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. Memorize the whole sermon. You say, how can I do that? One verse a day. One verse a day. And then tomorrow, verse one, verse two. Next day, verse one, verse two, verse three. And when you get to 10, start with verse two on day 11 and just work on 10 verses at a time. And then in, uh, let's see, I wrote it down. In four and a half months, you will have memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount. Four and a half months, not even half a year, just over a quarter. By the time we're halfway done with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll have it memorized. I'm kidding about that. But you can do it. You can do it. 18 weeks, all it is. And then number three, seize every opportunity to learn scripture. Seize every opportunity. Sunday school, small groups, children, youth groups, you know, podcast, whatever. We have an embarrassment of riches in America today. Use them, use them. And let me say a word to the parents here real quick. Parents, please, Seize every opportunity for your kids to learn scripture. Bring them to Sunday school. Bring them to youth. And bring them every week. You never know what's going to, what's going to stick. You never know from week to week what's gonna stick in your, in your kids' heads. But if you don't give them the opportunity, it sure won't. And so, seize those opportunities that we have. Try reading your verse or two tonight as a family. As a couple, talk about what it means and how you can apply it throughout the week. Just some practical guides. So those are some ways you can, some steps you can start taking this week to remain faithful to the scriptures. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to understand that his righteousness is what you need for salvation that his righteousness and his righteousness alone, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Because he came, he is fully God, fully man, and he came to live and he came to earn that righteousness that you need. But then he went to the cross and he died for your sins so that you can have forgiveness. And then after he was buried, three days later on the third day, he rose from the grave to show that what he did was enough for our salvation. That there's nothing else for us to do but place our faith in him. And he is now ascended to the right hand of God and he is sitting at the throne and he is offering himself to you as a deliverance, as a rescue from the wrath of God for your sins. We have a word for that in the church, rescue from sin. We call it, he's our savior. And beloved, I wanna ask you this morning, is he your savior? 
Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone? If you haven't, I would love to have time to speak with you this morning. And I would ask you to come during our invitation. Let's stand together and let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for the words that you spoke, Christ spoke so many years ago that were recorded by inspiration by Matthew and that now we have, that we can go back and we can see exactly what you require for life and obedience, for faith and practice, what to believe and what to do. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who has not believed and they are not doing, then I pray this morning you have brought them to a place of conviction. I pray that you have brought them to a place to where they understand and they, they, they begin to feel the weight of their sin and the impending doom that it brings. But Father, as they understand their sin, they will learn to see and they will see the greatness of your grace. That, that Lord, when we understand the death of our sin, grace is so sweet and so powerful. And I pray that power is going out this morning, that you will speak to the hearts of all of us once again, that we will be faithful to you, for you have been so faithful to us. If you have a need here this morning, I'm gonna ask you just to, I'm gonna ask the ladies just to play for just a few minutes, and, and the guy, to play just a few minutes. Just to reflect on what we have learned today, reflect on what's been said. And if the Lord is working in your heart, I do invite you to come. If you want prayer, or is there something you need, you need counsel? This is, this is a good time to come. Not the only time, but a good time.